Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, the first part of the book of Daniel was a series of excerpts from his life or the life of his friends who were trying to follow the true God. So those are really great Bible stories. A lot of you remember them from Sunday school when you were little, if you were raised in the church. Then you get to Daniel chapter seven, and until the end of the book, you have a series of visions which are not necessarily easily preached. And so I'm I'm really struggling with how to walk through these last sections of the book of Daniel, but I was told by one or two of you that if I didn't preach them, you would call me a chicken here today out loud, so I'm gonna take a shot at it. I won't tell you who said that, but Doug Webb, anyway. I want to begin with a parable. Is it rational to trust God even when we do not fully understand what he's doing? One of the most illuminating answers was put forward by the Oxford philosopher Basil Mitchell in his celebrated parable of the resistance leader. Imagine you're in German-occupied France during World War II and you want to join the resistance movement against the Nazis. One evening in a local bar, a stranger comes up to you and introduces himself as the leader of the local partisans. He spends the evening with you explaining the general requirements of your duties, giving you a chance to assess his trustworthiness and offering you the chance to go no further should you choose. But his warning is stern. If you join, your life will be at risk. This will be the only face-to-face meeting you will have. And after this, you'll receive orders and you'll have to follow them without question often completely in the darkest to the whys and wherefores of the operations, and always with the terrifying fear that your trust may be betrayed. Is such trust reasonable? Sometimes what the resistance leader is doing is obvious. He's helping members of the resistance. Thank heavens he's on our side, you say. Sometimes it's not obvious. He's in Gestapo uniform, arresting partisans, and unknown to you, releasing them out of sight to help them escape the Nazis. But always you must trust and follow the orders without question, despite all appearances, no matter what happens. The resistance leader knows best, you say, and only after the war will the secrets be open, the codes revealed, the true comrades vindicated, the traitors exposed, and sense made of the explanations. That's a good analogy. It's a good parable of our faith in God and his control of events in this world. He's like the resistance leader. We get bits and pieces from him, but in many ways he's largely hidden to us in this life until we see him in heaven. And it's often hard to know what he's doing, and it's often incredibly easy to question what it looks like he's doing. But sometimes the resistance leader, sometimes God, has given us clues about the future. And, and when those clues come true, there's just an incredible power in that, and we call these clues prophecies. And because of the prophecies specifically in Daniel chapter 7, which we're going to read this morning, a couple of stories in the New Testament make a lot more sense. In fact, many stories in the New Testament make more sense. And they find a rooting in prophecies like Daniel chapter 7. One of the stories, just to point it out, when Jesus was born, 
there was a star that appeared over Bethlehem. We all know the story. We call it the Star of Bethlehem. Now, it was something that was actually noticed in the East by pagan astronomers, pagan astrologers, wise men, we call them magi. They would have expected a king of great prominence, a king that would establish world dominion to be born about that time in history. And one of the reasons they would have expected it is they would have read it in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel explains the four world empires out of which that Messiah will be born. Daniel 7 was actually written in Aramaic. It wasn't written in Hebrew. It was not written for the Jews. It was written for the known world, the great kingdom that surrounded the Mediterranean Sea. At that point, it was for the Gentiles, the non-Jewish world. And so the wise men in every court of every major power had these scriptures in Aramaic about the future of the world and the coming of Messiah. The Magi had Daniel's prophecies. Second story, Jesus has been arrested. We go from his birth to right before his death. Jesus has been arrested on a Thursday evening. A trial is being held at the high priest's house, and legal experts are struggling to convict Jesus of anything that they can think of. Now, in Jewish law, you just, like Western law, you did not have to incriminate yourself. In fact, you couldn't force somebody to incriminate themselves. It's established in our laws as well. But in a desperate attempt, because the witnesses kept sort of, uh, you know, getting their stories mixed up and they kept contradicting each other, in a desperate attempt to get Jesus to self-incriminate, finally somebody says to Jesus, basically, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? They ask him his identity. They're hoping to convict him if he affirms that he is of blasphemy because, of course, they don't believe he is the Christ or the Son of God. So if he affirms that he is, we're going to put him to death. Do you know what Jesus quotes in his answer? Daniel chapter 7, and here is that quote. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What's interesting is Jesus uses that term of himself throughout his ministry, the term the Son of Man. This is where that term originates. Ezekiel uses it a few times of himself, but this is where it's used of the Messiah. This is where Jesus gets it from, and he affirms in his trial that he is the Son of Man and he will come on the clouds of heaven to reign over the whole earth. Well, that was enough. They condemned him to death at that moment. Now, as I said, the first six chapters of Daniel are personal stories from his service in the Babylonian courts in the Medo-Persian Empire. Remember, he was deported as a young man. He's basically a, a sort of a prisoner of war, only in a very positive way. Uh, he was deported. Some of the young men of Judah were deported. The idea was they grew up in the Babylonian court and they would serve there. The final chapters are visions of the future. Now, some of these visions have already taken place to some degree. Some of it has not. The vision we're going to look at today has partly taken place, partly not. I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 7. It is on page 634 and 635 in the Bible in front of you. Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to read the first part of this chapter. We'll read a little bit more uh, of it later. Daniel chapter 7, page 634. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. 
Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven was stirring up the great sea. Great sea is probably the Mediterranean. That part of the world is what we're talking about. Could just mean, metaphorically, sort of the sea of humanity. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast. This is the second kingdom, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking. Behold, another one like a leopard, the third empire which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, and extremely strong. It had large iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flame, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon uh, myriads, some say hundreds of millions, were standing before him, angels before the throne of God. The court sat and the books were opened. This is a court of judgment. I kept looking because of the sound, the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. This is the verse that Jesus quoted about himself. That's why they killed him. One with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. My spirit is distressed within me having to explain this. That was free. All right. First, you know, they say preachers, they say academics take simple things and make them more complex. Teachers take complex things and make them more simple. So that's what we're going to try to do here today. First, Daniel saw the details of the four future Mediterranean kingdoms before Messiah's coming. That's what's going on here in general in the early part of this chapter. Daniel saw the details of the four future, and including the current one, he's in Babylonia, Mediterranean kingdoms before Messiah's coming. Out of that fourth one, Messiah comes. Now, If this sounds familiar, there is a significant parallel between Daniel 2, remember the statue, 
with the head of gold and then the chest and arms of silver, I think the belly and thighs of bronze, feet of iron and clay. That was the same kind of vision, but there's a much more specificity in this vision than there is in chapter 2. But it's similar. Chapter 2 and chapter 7 are somewhat parallel. Now, this is where Daniel gets very interesting. Orthodox scholars, people who believe the Bible comes from God, people who believe the Bible contains stories of the miraculous, basically historic Christianity. Historic Christianity and historic scholars believe Daniel wrote Daniel, okay? Now, I know that sounds like, well, that shouldn't be hard to prove. Well, you'll believe it or not, today we have to prove everything. But historically, scholars have believed that Daniel wrote Daniel. And this is a big deal because Daniel, and he writes in the first person throughout this book, Daniel was written in the 6th century B.C. He claims the visions in the book, again, as first-person author. The events take place between 600 and 550 B.C., roughly, and he wrote it before he died. The predictions have a miraculous nature to them because they predict the future, especially the future from 550 B.C. until Jesus comes. And today we see a future until the end of time is talked about here, and we will explain that in a few moments. But some of these predictions are amazingly precise. When we look at chapter 9, you're going to be shocked by the dating that Daniel does from the moment he writes it until Jesus comes and presents himself as Messiah to the year. There's some fantastic uh, predictions in this book. And they scream out about the sovereign control of God over all of his creation because they scream out that God is controlling the present and the future in ways that might make a little of us uncomfortable, which we'll talk about later. Now, liberal scholars, those who don't accept the authorship of the scriptures as from God, those who say it's a book just written by men and they would explain the miraculous in every way possible, don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, don't believe in his resurrection, etc., they believe this book was written centuries later because then it takes away the predictive element of it. If the book is written centuries later, it really doesn't matter anymore. They're eliminating the miraculous. But when you do that, no period of history makes Daniel's predictions make sense anymore. They can't fit these predictions into any other epoch, especially these four kingdoms that Daniel mentions in chapter 2 and chapter 7. It only makes sense if we begin with Daniel writing this in the 6th century B.C. and we take it at face value. So Daniel's sleeping one night. And God decided to burden him with the future of the world until the end of time. Not a dream about his homeland, not a dream about a beautiful Jewish girl from his youth, or his dream house in retirement. Instead, he sees the future. Four world kingdoms. The sea, as I said, generally is viewed as reflecting the Mediterranean Sea and the peoples that dominated that region because biblical history is around basically the Middle East and the kingdoms that dominated that region. So it refers either to the Gentile world around the Mediterranean or the Mediterranean itself, but these kingdoms are around that sea. The first kingdom takes place while Daniel actually is living, and that's this Babylonian kingdom. In verse 4, it talks about this great beast that is basically a winged lion. It's a lion with the wings of an eagle. He said, I kept looking until its wings were plucked, 
and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. Now listen to this. A human mind also was given to it. So that's a little nebulous. Well, this was the empire that Daniel served. He was deported into this empire as a casualty of war. Now what's interesting is all scholars who are conservative believe this refers to the kingdom Daniel was brought into, the Babylonian kingdom. You know what's interesting? If you go to Babylon today, what hasn't been destroyed through war and what has survived from ancient cultures, there are statues of winged lions all over the place in the ruins of ancient Babylon. Also, there are other prophets like Ezekiel and uh, I believe uh, Habakkuk maybe and maybe one other that eight times refer to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon originally, as either a lion or an eagle. It was sort of the symbol of the nation of Babylonia. What's interesting is the last little descriptor of this kingdom says a human mind was given to it. And scholars believe this is probably a reference. Do you remember boanthropy? Remember we talked about boanthropy? It's sort of a, a psychological malady where a person believes they're a bovine. It's like a real thing, all right? Something you might want to prey on your worst enemy, all right? So it's a situation where Nebuchadnezzar experienced this for about seven years. He thought he was like cattle. It's a real thing. It actually happens. And when they reference here, a human mind was given to it, it's likely a reference to what happened to Nebuchadnezzar well the t- during the time he was leading his great kingdom where he experienced this seven-year illness and then was healed. That's the first kingdom. Then Daniel says he saw a second beast, and it represents Medo-Persia. Verse 5, it was a bear. A bear represents fierceness in battle. It says the bear was raised up on one side, which scholars believe refers to the fact that this was a kingdom, basically, that was a combination of two kingdoms, the the Medes and the Persians. They joined and made one kingdom, and the Persians always dominated. So this is this bear sort of raised up on one side, sort of like the right arm stronger than the left arm, representing this Medo-Persian empire. And then it said it had three ribs in its teeth. Now, what on earth would that mean? Three ribs in its teeth. You know what's interesting about that? I don't know that we can know for sure. There were actually three major conquests in the Medo-Persian Empire where I believe they were taking new territory. The Lydian Kingdom in 546, the Chaldean Kingdom in 539, and Egypt in 525. And scholars say that likely makes sense that those are three major conquests where they added to their kingdom. Then there's this third kingdom, which we know as Greece, verse 6. It's a four-winged leopard. Why four wings on a leopard? You know what's interesting about the uh, kingdom of Greece? When it fell, it didn't fall, but after Alexander the Great uh, died, do you know what happened to the kingdom of uh, of Greece? It was divided into four kingdoms. Talked about the four wings of the lep- uh, on the leopard. It was divided into four empires. Attempts were made by some of those kings or leaders to reunite it. It never happened. The four divisions were Greece, Thrace, or Asia Minor, Asia, and Egypt. Four different kingdoms. Rome conquered Greece, and it conquered those four kingdoms. Rome, the Roman kingdom, is the last beast, this terrifying beast in verse 7. Its incredible strength and teeth indicate it would be militarily unprecedented, which we know it was. Then he talks about ten horns on this beast, representing some sort of confederation of nations, and eventually one horn will emerge, and he represents a person, not a nation, and he will do battle with God and Messiah's kingdom. Now, these horns, these ten horns, are still future. 
So God gave Daniel, we'll talk about that in a moment, God gave Daniel a prediction of the future kingdoms of the world. Now the question I want to ask for a second, because this is significant to how we view God, how did he do that? How, how does God know? How, how does God know the future? Does, does he simply see it? Does God operate outside of time in some way that he can see everything at once? Or does God operate in such a way that he predicts the future and then he needs to be sort of the causative agent to make it come to pass? And yet somehow in that process, as he's raising up one nation, letting another fall, he's causing these things or he's seeing them and somehow he is able to do it without getting his hands dirty and ever being accused of evil. Now it's not just the, the unbelieving world that struggles with that kind of a sovereign God, your pastor does too. I do too. Because when you see this measure of control that God has, then we start asking questions. But then why this? Why that? Why do you allow? Then we start looking at God and making him guilty of a few things that we shouldn't. We'll get back to that later. But if scholars are right about this, and they are quite united, those that believe this is written by Daniel, they're quite united on the interpretations, at least that I've given you. This passage is shocking about the level of God's view and control over history, about his sovereignty over everything that he's created in this world. Second, Daniel sees a coming conflict between an evil world ruler and an enthroned Messiah. Now, I want to take just a time out for a second and explain something because this passage, this next passage, sees the future into the, into the Roman Empire. It also sees a future, which we'll talk about in a moment, of the end times. And you and I are sort of living right now. One of those things has already happened and one has not. And, and I want to just explain a couple of things about Old Testament prophecy that will give you a little perspective on this. Once Messiah comes from an Old Testament perspective, once Messiah arrives, we are in the end times. Now, I know a lot of you look at your Bibles and it'll say, you know, in the end times, in the last times, these things are going to happen. Technically, once Messiah comes, we're already sort of there. It's just a matter of when the end really comes. But we already live in the end times from that standpoint. So we've been in the end times for 2,000 years. The ruler that Daniel next talks about is seen as emerging from the Roman Empire. But you might say, hey, we live 2,000 years uh, from the time of Jesus, and the Roman Empire fell a long time ago, so how does this make sense? Here's how I would view that, and, and this may not be a perfect answer. But again, from an Old Testament standpoint, the church age that we exist in was not really seen. There's just nothing about it in the Old Testament. They saw the end times happening when Jesus came. They never saw Jesus coming and then leaving and coming back again. You only see one coming of Messiah from an Old Testament prophetic uh, perspective. So there's no second coming in their minds. We only learn of that once Jesus left in the first place. Okay. So out of the ashes of the region of the last empire, this Roman Empire, comes at some point in the future a confederation of ten rulers or nations, these ten horns. 
One will rise to the top and subject the others. Verse 8 describes him as one with the eyes of a man and mouth uttering great boasts. Sort of a divine human. A rival religious leader. Or, if you look at the rest of Scripture, the person we would call the Antichrist. Daniel chapter 7 is the first mention of that being. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he's called the man of lawlessness, proclaiming himself to be God. In Revelations 13, he's called the beast who's empowered by the dragon. Daniel sees into the future towards the end of human history, and he first describes this person that is an actor throughout the end times. And as Daniel describes the ascent of this political religious ruler, he sees another scene. God is enthroned on high in a throne of judgment. He's surrounded by, it says, thousands and thousands of angels. Then it says myriads upon myriads. Some say that means thousands of millions of angels are surrounding this throne of God's judgment. Books were opened, which is an implication of judgment, and judgment was given against this antichrist. And into that scene then comes the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven which Jesus identified the night he was betrayed and the night he was convicted as himself someday. He comes to the Father's throne. There he's given dominion, rulership over the whole earth. That kingdom will never be overthrown. Righteousness will reign forever through Jesus Christ. And the first promise we see in the Bible where, where after the fall, God is making promises to the man, to the woman, to Satan, he says to Satan, the seed of the woman will rescue humanity. You will bruise his heel. He will crush your head. This is where that finally takes place. All right, so I know that's a lot academically. Sorry. Third point Daniel makes. That's not really a point, but Daniel gets a personal lesson in its interpretation. And in the end, we win. If you're frustrated with the way the world works and the way, the way history is unfolding and sort of the evil we see around the world and the inconsistency of nations to ever follow sort of the path of the true God, listen to what Daniel says about how things end in verse 19. Basically, he asked an angel who was giving him this vision. He said, I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, verse 19, which was different from the others. Exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron, its claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. That's Rome. And now he moves to the future. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up, before which three of them fell, the horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. In other words, he was winning against the people of God in the future until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. And then he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom of the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High, will wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in time and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. In Daniel, that simply means years, three and a half years. 
but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Well, obviously not very well. The seeds in this chapter have been planted for, just think of this, the timing of the coming of Messiah out of this fourth kingdom, which was the Roman Empire, the coming of those four kingdoms was some description of each one. The arrival of the Antichrist, which you see especially in this last section, is more and more direct because it talks about the battle between he and the people of God. The tribulation period mentioned in Revelation, this seven-year period, which is also mentioned in Daniel chapter 9, and half of it is mentioned here, this three-and-a-half-year wrath of the Antichrist in this tribulation period against the people of God and the ultimate reign of Jesus Christ and of us with Jesus. All of that is seen by Daniel in about 550 B.C. Now, what do we do with this? Application to your daily life. God's unmistakable control of history. First, a 6th century B.C. Daniel has huge implications about God's sovereignty. Liberal scholars know that the book of Daniel from the 6th century B.C. is a total validation of the supernatural, miracle-making God. If Daniel was written when we believe Daniel was written, it just demonstrates a supernatural God that many people don't want to admit created and controls history. That God sees and controls the future. That God includes all evil threats to his dominion in his plan, which I find uncomfortable. I, we have a sovereign God here who's raising kingdoms and making kingdoms to fall, who sees this Antichrist coming in the future and seems okay with it. I don't know if you're uncomfortable with that. I'm not crazy about it. He sees it, but yet God claims to be removed from all evil. But this speaks to God's sovereignty. And this message was given in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. The middle part of the book of Daniel, from chapter 2 until chapter 7 at the end, is given in Aramaic. So these Babylonian and Persian rulers who had Daniel in their court are basically writing this and sending it to all the known world in their era. All the known world knew about these predictions, including the wise men, the night the star shone over Bethlehem. So God is sovereign. Second, God's sovereignty is both a comfort and a challenge. We talked about this a while back in the book, but I would say choose comfort. God's sovereignty simply refers to his total control over all of his creation. Now, when I think of God being in control of everything around me, I should find comfort in that. Because the basic meaning of that is that if anything happens, God has allowed it or he's caused it. Either way, he's in control. Christians throughout history have tended to find comfort in that. Because what it means is if God is sovereign, we know that things are going to end the way he says they're going to end because he controls the world. He controls history. 
It becomes predictable. There's to be comfort in that. Now, I watch a lot of movies, as you know, and you don't watch a lot of movies, as I know. We're working on that. Movies to me are sort of like white noise. I have movies on in the background. Whenever I'm doing something, if I'm doing something financial, you know, there might be a movie on while I'm writing a sermon. It's white noise to me. And so I usually know what's happening. There's, you know, I've seen most movies a few times. So they're predictable for me. And so my kids used to tease me. It's like I could watch a movie over and over and sort of feel the suspenses if I didn't know what was going to happen. It's because most of the time I'm not really paying that much attention while I'm watching them. But there's some comfort in knowing how they end. When I'm watching a movie, I'm not on the edge of my seat because I've seen it before. It's predictable. I know how it's going to end. I know the good guys win. And so there is comfort in that as a moviegoer. Yesterday, Rambo, First Blood. Sylvester Stallone. Great theology from Sylvester Stallone, by the way. Rambo, first blood. You know where Rambo is a Vietnam vet and he's come back from Vietnam and he's sort of taken a lot of heat from a local sheriff who's kind of a jerk and we know in that movie what happens. Rambo sort of blows up the town and he ends up in military prison. It's going to happen every time I see it. If I watch a rerun, it's going to be the same. But what if he died in the rerun? That would be completely unsettling because there would not be Rambo 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, etc., it's predictable. Rambo number two, he rescues a POW. We know he wasn't supposed to. It was all a conspiracy just to get this, you know, sort of behind the U.S. government. But he rescues a POW. But what if he stays captured, which he is in that movie? Oh, no. If a rerun did that, it would mess me up forever. But no, if I watch Rambo two today, he's going to rescue a POW. Rambo three, he rescues a friend in Afghanistan, Colonel Trotman, and he gets involved in the war in Afghanistan, and he's against a Russian general. Well, what if I watch a rerun today and the Russian general kills Rambo? I'll never trust movies again. Rambo chapter four. He rescues missionaries, after which he is known as Saint John Rambo. But what if he gets into Burma, I believe it is, and what if the missionaries all die, then there is no Saint Rambo. If I watch Rambo 4, it's going to be the same every time because it's, it's, it's already, the script has been written. They're just playing out a script that's already written, and I know the script of each movie so I can relax as I watch them. And in the end, Rambo, the good guy, always wins. There's a predictable ending. If that were to change, imagine the anxiety. See, that's why God's sovereignty is a comfort. The script has been written. I can count on God handling history the way he said he was. I can count on God handling the present reality the way he said he will. That is intended to be a comfort. We want a sovereign God. We want a powerful sovereign God. But here's the problem with a sovereign God. A sovereign God who controls all things is more subject to our criticism It's your world. You're in charge. You see what I see?
That's where we struggle with God's sovereignty. Because we know he's in control. We know he can do all things. He owns it. We don't like what we see. And so the skeptics and the skeptic in us tends to start blaming God and holding him accountable for the imperfect world that he rules over. Which leads to the next point. Evil remains an uncomfortable part of God's plan. Now the Bible makes it very clear God is never the source of evil. God doesn't do evil. And the fact that he's sovereign and in control of all things doesn't mean he's the actor in all things. He just is ultimately in control. You know, I had four kids. I was theoretically in control of them. You know, I was... I was sovereign over my family, but I couldn't control everything they did, and I still can't. Not supposed to anymore. They're adults. So, you know, if I, have a, a, if I own a home and I've got a yard, I'm sort of sovereign over my little domain there. But it doesn't mean I control everything that happens. I, I cause certain things. I control certain things. I own it. But a lot of things happen that I, that I allow, but I'm not the cause of them. More people point to the problem of evil and suffering as their reason for not believing in God than any other. It is not merely a problem, it is the problem. A Barnapole asked, if you could ask God only one question, you knew he would give you an answer, what would you ask? And the most common response was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? John Stott said, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. This isn't new. Its distribution and degree appear to be entirely random and therefore unfair. Sensitive spirits ask if it can possibly be reconciled with God's justice and love. How can you be a God of justice and love and let this world exist as it does? Richard Swinburne, writing in the Oxford Companion to philosophy, says the problem of evil is the most powerful objection to traditional theism or belief in God. Ronald Nash writes, objections to theism come and go, but every philosopher I know believes that the most serious challenge to theism was, is, and will continue to be the problem of evil. You will not get far in a conversation with someone who rejects Christianity before the problem of evil is raised. Pulled out like the ultimate trump card, it's supposed to silence believers and prove that the all-good and all-powerful God of the Bible doesn't exist. You know... If you're here and you struggle with that a little bit, join the club. I, I do too. But, but it's, to me, it's sort of like, like the apostles said when Jesus preached a sermon, the whole crowd left. They're like, Jesus said, are you going to leave too? They're like, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's the way I look at this. I don't like everything God does. I don't necessarily like everything about God. But I believe Jesus rose from the dead, which makes him God. I believe this is God's word, and I don't get to fashion the God I want. Therefore, he has the words of eternal life. I follow. Maybe God isn't exactly the way we think he is. When we think of a good God, we think of a God who's not going to let anything bad happen to us. Well, that's not even what Jesus said was reality. He said, in this world, if you follow me, you're going to have tribulation. You good chance you're going to die for me. We think of a good God as helping us to avoid what Jesus promised is going to happen. Think about that. A good God would never let me die for Jesus, and yet Jesus said, you're going to die for me. It's interesting. The word witness, you will be my witnesses, is the word martyr. 
Yet a good God would keep us from what he actually promised would happen. Martyrdom. We want a sovereign God. But a sovereign God is subject to our critique. Because it's his world. And evil is a part of that. So let me ask you the question we're going to end with. Do you really want a world without evil? Well, obviously, it's that, well, of course we do. Well, then we've got to get rid of you too. And I'm good with that. For some, with some of you, I'm good with that. I have a list. Not so many of you, but from my past. I've got a list of people I love for God to eliminate. It's everything I can do not to do it myself. That was a little harsh for Canada, wasn't it? Yeah, sorry about that. Sorry about, I am getting more polite, though, the longer I'm here. And I'm apologizing more. Sorry. Do you want a world without free will? Because that's what it takes to get a world without evil. Do you want a world without free will? There's actually a movie. There has to be, right? There's actually a movie about this. Tom Cruise. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Minority Report. Where in the future, uh, they have the ability to sort of track human thought. And law enforcement actually starts convicting people of crimes based on thought and intent. It's called Minority Report. It's an old movie. Think about our expectations of God. From the moment of creation, he put a tree in the garden and said, I want you to choose to freely love and serve me by not doing this one thing. Because God doesn't want robots. He wants free beings. What if God took the radical step of setting a deadline for ridding the world of evil? Suppose God announces that next Monday at midnight, he will step in and stop all suffering caused by evil people. How would he do that? Let's say God decides to use a tool carried by many police officers, a taser gun. A taser gun shoots an individual with a temporary high-voltage current of electricity. The makers of taser guns claim that a shock lasting half a second will cause intense pain and muscle contraction. Two to three seconds will cause a person to become dazed and drop to the ground. Anything longer than three seconds will drop an attacker for up to 15 minutes. The makers of taser guns boost of a 95% compliance rate. <laughs> I would think so. In other words, hit a person with enough electricity, you can get him to do anything. I want to know how the 5% respond to 15 minutes on the ground and what they're thinking after that. Like, I can get up and fight? I, I don't. Anyway, it's cute. When the deadline for stopping evil comes, God gets us to comply by, with his wishes by shocking us. Start to tell a lie, you're hit with a half-second zap. Try to rob a person, you get two seconds of shock. A would-be murderer would be incapacitated for the 15 minutes, except for the 5% who continue on their way. That wasn't in here. However, knowing that evil thoughts often lead to evil actions, God also zaps us for sinister thoughts. But God's still not finished. Since it's evil to fail to do good when given the opportunity, sins of omission as well as commission, God zaps us for failing to show mercy and kindness and justice. As a result, people are zapped for doing evil acts, thinking evil thoughts, and failing to do what is right. What would be the result? A world of twitchy people who obey God like cowering, beaten dogs. You know, that sounds funny and ridiculous. It's written by J.P. Moreland, who's an apologist, and he's right. We don't want evil in the world. And for some of us, what we're thinking about is, you know, something going on between Russia and Ukraine. We want Putin. 
to have something bad happen to him. And I personally share that thought. But you know, he's not the only bad person in the world. There's another bad person in the world who's actually giving this message. Who has no chance of heaven except Jesus died for me. And I'm not that good now, I can't imagine what I'd be without God. God didn't break it, people. We broke it. And we continue to break it. We carry the burden for an evil world, not God. You want a world with free will? It's the world we have. God, we thank you for your word. And in it, we see this incredible, miraculous control of history that you seem to have. And we also see that a part of that is, are things that we're not terribly comfortable with. The Antichrist is a part of the plan of history. And we see that somehow you're able to control a world where you don't cause evil, you allow evil, and at times we're uncomfortable with that. I don't know how else you could do it unless you made us into robots. You want us to choose to love and follow you. That's the way we glorify you. We want to be free beings. And this evil resides in every one of us. Thank you that you are a sovereign God. Help us to think more clearly about the accusations we make against you and the world we think we want. Help us to have faith in you. Help us to explain you better to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.